I'm sure that many of you, maybe all of you, have seen these things in the grocery stores, but I brought one just in case someone accuses me of making this up. It's a white chocolatey flavored cross. <laughs> it also comes in milk chocolate, which I suppose is more authentic, although this is pretty good. You can see the actual wood grain in the cross. And the box says, I don't know if you can see, it's the biggest one, Happy Easter. On this side it says Candy Cross. It's manufactured in Reading, Pennsylvania by the Palmer Company, whose motto is, I kid you not, making candy fun. <laughs> There's much I want to say about this, but I better not. <laughs> Moving along, two weeks ago, National Public Radio had to issue a correction to its reporting on the upcoming Sunday events. This would have been last Sunday. Here's how the NPR news story described Easter, and I quote, Easter, dash, the day celebrating the idea that Jesus did not die and go to hell or purgatory or anywhere at all, but rather arose into heaven. Where to begin? <laughs> Easter doesn't celebrate an idea at all. It celebrates what Christianity insists is an event. Jesus did, in fact, die and descend into hell. That's where Peter says that he took the captivity of death itself captive. Some wimpy Christians want to say, well, that just means the grave. That's okay. I can be friends with wimps. <laughs> And Jesus doesn't arise into heaven on Easter, but 40 days after Easter. And those 40 days are rather significant, as we will see. Well, there's much more I want to say about this, but I better not. It shouldn't surprise us, I suppose, that the world trashes and trivializes Easter. The true meaning of what happened on that first Easter morning has become hidden because the church to which that message has been entrusted has too often trivialized it. The church has too often turned Jesus' resurrection into just the happy ending after the dark, messy horror of Good Friday. Scaling it down so that the great and glorious doctrine of the resurrection becomes a fancy way of saying, like NPR said, he went to heaven. Easter then means there's life after death. And so the world looks at Easter and shrugs its shoulders. Because people outside the church might believe in life after death or might not believe in life after death, but however they reach that conclusion, they don't even consider odd stories about a risen body and an empty tomb and what that means for the entire human race and what it means for the entire universe. If Easter is just all about life after death, why do we need an empty tomb? The message of the gospel is that what God did for Jesus, that explosive Sunday morning, is what he intends to do for the whole creation. You and I, we live in this interval between Jesus' resurrection and his final rescue and transformation of the whole world. And in this time, we're called to be people of the new creation, participants in the coming of Christ's kingdom, in which everything will be restored that's what Peter talks about in that reading from Acts. Jesus had to come, die, and raise so that all things could be restored. Easter is about a new creation that's already begun. It's about our part in it. 
God is remaking his world. He's challenging all the other powers in the world who think it's their job to create the world. The resurrection shows us that order and justice and beauty will be destroyed. It'll be destroyed, will be restored, sorry. Let me start over. Order and justice and beauty will be restored through the destruction of what destroys order, justice, and beauty, and that's death. Death will be destroyed. And once death is destroyed, order and justice and beauty will be restored. But that doesn't fit the worldview of the last 400 years or so. That worldview says that human beings can use power to, can use violence to seize power, and they can re recreate a world of order and justice and beauty by recreating humanity in the image of some social ideology. And over and over again, human history has shown, at least in the last 400 years, the tool to accomplish the recreation of the world is death. Whether you range on the ideologies from tyrannies to anarchies, ultimately the tool to reconstruct society is at least the threat of death. Death for those who oppose the new social order. And from the mindset of the last 400 years, death is the ultimate tool to restore society to order and justice and beauty. And you know what flies harshest in the face of that bloody mindset which has killed so many millions in the last century even? The resurrection. The resurrection tells both the tyrant and the anarchist that their great tool is not the final word. That the great tool of oppression itself will die. As Anglican pastor and poet John Donne wrote, death thou shalt die. Well, we get more than just a hint of that in the verses we read from John's Gospel this morning. These verses that we read just a few minutes ago are the climax of John's Gospel. They're the, they mark the true conclusion of John's Gospel. John brings the story to a conclusion. He explains why he's written the whole Gospel. Now, there is another chapter which is added on as an epilogue and an afterword. That's a great chapter. I'm not preaching against that chapter. I love that chapter, okay? But I'm saying that this part we just read is the great climax and conclusion, and then the rest is... I think actually a story about how the church is supposed to behave, but that's a different sermon. Um, it, it's, it's a declining feature of feed my sheep, be restored, eat together, meet Jesus, and so on. Well, anyway, there is one more chapter. I'm not ignoring it. But this is the climax of the story is where we read today. And just like in all the Gospels, each story is selected for a particular purpose, to move the story along. John tells us twice that he very carefully selects which events to communicate to us. At one point, actually in the next chapter, he writes, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And in our reading today, after these, either one or two stories, depending on how you read it, um, after, after these stories, he tells us why these stories were selected. This is just at the ending of what I read this morning. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John says twice, Jesus did many other things. So many other things. But I've selected these that you know that Jesus is the Christ. 
And people who've actually done the work of putting paper, pencil to paper and reading John's Gospel and noting things very carefully tell me that John's Gospel contains events which occur on only 21 days of Jesus' life. Out of 33 years, only 21 days are, have any events mentioned. And on some of those days, it's a very short, little, simple event. But John says he selected each of these events to convince us that Jesus is the Christ. John says, I've selected these because these things will lead you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the chosen one of God and God himself, who not only was born in human flesh, but died in human flesh and was raised in human flesh. I'm glad we had that song about the babe of Bethlehem mentioned in Easter. We've got to tie these things all together. God was born in the flesh. Jesus born in the flesh, dies in the flesh, and raised in the flesh. The unity of Godhead and manhood was complete and total and final. The incarnation is not something that Jesus just pretended to do for 33 years. But it's an ultimate, eternal act of God. And the whole Gospel of John concludes with this picture that I just read to you. The whole Gospel of John. And I know you know how the Gospel of John begins. It begins, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not understand it. He came into His own, and His own received Him not. And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. And the reader says, wow, are you telling me God became a human being? I wonder what it would be like if God became a human being. And John says, I'm glad you asked. And off we go. First there's John the Baptist standing out in the desert calling people to repent of their sins. And one day he sees Jesus and he points and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then Jesus begins to call people to follow him. Then there's a wedding and Jesus turns water to wine. Then he throws swindlers and con artists out of the temple. Then a rabbi named Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. And Jesus tells him, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And then he meets a Samaritan woman and tells her where she can find living water. Then he heals a bunch of people. He feeds people miraculously. He walks on water. He proclaims the forgiveness of sins. He raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. Uh-oh. Now the plot turns. The leaders of the people realize that he's the Messiah, but he's not the kind of Messiah they want. Only the Messiah has power over nature. Only the Messiah has power to heal. Only the Messiah could forgive sins. Only the Messiah could raise someone from the dead. But Jesus is not the kind of Messiah that we want. This is a dangerous Messiah. If Rome finds out about this guy, they'll destroy us. And so the leaders meet. I think this is in John 12, if you're interested. They decide. In fact, Gamaliel, the leading rabbi, says, it's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to die. And so they plot to kill him. And they do. But Jesus raises from the dead, is risen from the dead, and that's what it looks like for God to become a human being. And John sits there at his desk, staring at the blank piece of paper. He's thinking of everything that he said, everything he could say. He thinks of everything Jesus said and did, all of his encounters, all of his conversations. And John asks, how do I bring it all together here at the end? How do I close out the gospel here? And he remembers this scene, and he smiles, and he starts to write, and he gives us this concluding scene of Thomas, an understandably frustrated, confused, disoriented, and disbelieving man who looks at the wounds of the risen Jesus' body and says, My Lord and my God. 
And John writes to you and to me. And you know, you're like Thomas. And you need to believe too. So there are three questions here, but they all have the same answer. What did Thomas not believe? What did Thomas come to believe? And what does John say that we need to believe? Like I said, the answer is the same to each question. Let's start with thinking about what Thomas would have believed. He certainly would have believed that the disciples had encountered the ghost of Jesus. The disciples, at least at this time, believed in ghosts. Do you remember when the disciples were on the boat and saw Jesus walking towards them? They said, oh no, it must be a ghost. Nobody in the boat says, I don't believe in ghosts. They're all in a big panic. So if the disciples had said, we saw the ghost of Jesus, Thomas would have said, oh, whoa. Was it freaky or weird? (laughs) See, he would have believed that the spirit of Jesus had appeared to the disciples. There's even, in fact, a story in the Old Testament about the dead Samuel appearing to King Saul. So if they had said that the spirit of Jesus somehow kind of hovered there and spoke to us, he might have thought of that story and said, well, that can happen. I hasten to add that the moral to that story of the dead Samuel appearing to King Saul is that you're not supposed to attempt to conjure up and bring forth people from the dead. It's very dangerous stuff. But anyway, what Thomas does not at first believe But what he comes to believe, and what John says we must believe, is that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. The disciples tell Thomas, we saw the resurrected Jesus, and he said, I'll never believe that. Now, resurrection, that word, the first century Jews, wasn't about going to heaven, or life after death, or encountering the spirit of a dead person. It was about those who were physically dead, being physically alive again, where they would never physically die again. Some Jews, not all, but some Jews, believe that God would do this for all people at the end of time, at the coming kingdom of God, when God restores the entire universe to the beautiful, perfect place he had designed it to be. And then after resurrecting all, God would judge them, and then the kingdom of God would be on earth. Some Jews believed that this would happen, and of course some Jews believed it would not happen. The Pharisees, you've come across that group before, they believed that that, that this would happen, that the resurrection would happen at the end of time when God's kingdom came. There's another group, the Sadducees, you may have heard of them, who did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why the Sadducees were so sad. You see. Resurrection was certainly a common belief. In itself, it's not a strange idea to the first century Jewish mind. I mean, even the Sadducees who said the resurrection wasn't going to happen knew what the word resurrection meant. It meant that someone who was physically alive would become physically dead, but then would become physically alive again and never never physically die again. So it's a common idea in which many Jews, Jewish people believed, but nobody, including Jesus' followers, was expecting anyone to be resurrected, to be bodily raised from the dead right in the middle of history. First century Jews who followed men who went around proclaiming themselves to be the Messiahs, and there were many of them, more than you might think, knew that if you chose One guy and you said, I think he might be the Messiah. And you started following that guy. If that guy got killed by the authorities, it meant you'd back the wrong guy. 
you gave up and you went home. <clears throat> Going around saying that, well, he really was the Messiah. He was resurrected, though. Wouldn't make any sense at all. Nobody would believe it. Because resurrection, even if you didn't believe it, you knew that's supposed to take place at the end of time. Nobody would go around saying, our Messiah was killed by the Romans, but he was resurrected right in the middle of time. Unless that Messiah really was the Messiah and really had been raised from the dead. And to be clear again, the resurrection is not about someone coming back into the present mode of life. They're about someone going on to a new sort of existence, a new level of existence, but still emphatically physical and bodily. If anything, a resurrected body is more body-ish than this body you and I have because it's a body the way God intended bodies to be before the corruption of sin eroded the body that God created us to have. Now, St. Paul does speak of a resurrection body being spiritual, but when he says it's spiritual, it doesn't mean that it's non-material, like a ghost kind of hovering around or something. The construction of that Greek word tells us that, that that's what animates the body, not what is, the body is made out of, but what animates it. Paul says the resurrection body is animated by God's life-giving spirit, which is clear because St. Paul goes on to say that same spirit is at work in us. That resurrection Spirit is at work in us and will have the same effect on us and on the whole world. Again, this is simply how resurrection was understood by first century Jews. When the disciples went out and said Jesus was resurrected, every Jewish person knew what that meant. They didn't have to explain the concept. But again, absolutely nobody, including Jesus' followers, was expecting one person to be bodily raised from the dead in the middle of history before the kingdom of God had gloriously appeared, before the universe had been restored to its perfect beauty and glory, what Peter calls the restoring of all things. And in this passage that I read to you this morning, the disciples are changed forever. We see this looking just briefly at the Acts reading in the light of our Gospel reading. Notice that in the Gospel reading, the apostles are sitting locked away for fear of of the Jews, it's called. Now, to be honest in translation, you had to translate this word as Jews. But what this word means is Judean leaders, okay? The disciples themselves are Jews. They're not locking themselves all together in the room because they're all scared of each other. Okay? They're afraid of the Judean leaders, okay? That word Jew, in fact, at that time, primarily meant someone who was from Judea. You hear, even in the New Testament, people identifying the, the disciples as Galileans. And then the Judeans are down here. The Galileans over there and the Judeans over here. Um, anyway, they've locked themselves away from the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. Again, they're not scared of themselves. But within just a few weeks, within just a few weeks, they are standing up to these very same Jewish leaders they'd locked themselves away from. It's the section just after this reading in Acts. In this Acts reading we read today, which starts off rather abruptly, Jesus, uh, the disciples uh, Peter and John have, have healed a paralyzed man. And this paralyzed man jumps up and he's able to walk normally. And everybody says, what's going on? They all gather around to see what's going on. And Peter preaches to them what we read today. Well, the Jewish leaders show up. They arrest them. They take them. They beat them. They put them in prison. The next day, next morning, they let them out of prison. And they say, I hope you learned your lesson. Now, where did the disciples go? 
Did they run back off to Galilee? No. Where do they go? They go right back to the temple and they start preaching. And the same Judean leaders show up, arrest them again, take them to prison again, beat them up again, <coughs> let them go in the morning and said, maybe you learned your lesson this time. Now where do you think the disciples went? Right back to the temple and they start preaching again. And these same Judean leaders show up and say, what in the world are you doing? Why are you doing this? And Peter looks at them, the same Jewish leaders he'd locked himself away from a few weeks before, and he says, because you murdered Jesus. But God rose him from the dead. They've been changed. The witness of the risen Lord fills them with courage. In fact, that's what Peter says when the, the, that third time the, the, the leaders come, Peter says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as Savior and Lord and we are witnesses to these things. This is only one reason, but it's, to tell you the truth, the largest reason why speaking as a professional historian of some sorts, I can say that the best and really the only reasonable explanation of what happens is that the apostles actually witnessed the risen Jesus. It's the only way to explain the story. I say that not as a preacher, but as an historian. Because any historian who looks at the story must explain why Christianity got going in the first place. Why it hailed Jesus as Messiah, despite his execution. Because he hadn't defeated the pagan Romans. He hadn't rebuilt the temple. He hadn't brought justice and peace to the world. And all of these things are things the Messiah was supposed to have done. And there's really no way to explain why the early Christian movement took the shape that it did without the resurrection. The only explanation that fits the evidence is the one that early Christians insisted upon. Jesus really had been raised from the dead. His body was not just reanimated, he wasn't just resuscitated, but it was transformed so that it was no longer subject to death. Peter insisted in the passage from Acts that we actually did read this morning. He's talking now to the broader audience. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Peter says that Jesus is the author of life. Where in the Gospels were we ever told that Jesus was the author of life in terms of what Jesus taught? It's during those 40 days after the resurrection, those 40 days of instruction. That was a pretty concentrated course, don't you think? Peter says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Not you killed a great moral teacher, but the author of life. And the apostles are to be witnesses to the resurrection. Thomas is to be an apostle. And that's why Jesus returns to reveal his resurrected body to Thomas. Because Thomas is supposed to be one of the apostles and he's supposed to carry the message that he was a witness to the resurrection. If Thomas was expected to merely pass on the moral teachings of Jesus or to tell stories about how Jesus set a good moral example, well, Thomas has had three years' experience of that. But what he hasn't had experience of is witnessing the resurrected Christ because that's what's important. And this is a direct refutation of a very common line of thought in the world today. Many people today want to say the exact opposite. 
I mean, we've all heard this sort of thing, right? Some people will say, well, you know, all this talk about miracles and sacrifice and worshiping Christ and, and the resurrection, all, all that kind of stuff just divides people. So this, this must have all been added on later in the story. What's really important is what Jesus had to say about love and justice and peace. That's the really important thing about what Jesus had to say. Everything else, the virgin birth and miracles and resurrection and, and Jesus' deity for crying out loud, all this nonsense was just added on later. What's really important about Jesus' is teaching, everything else is just added on. But John says just the opposite. Jesus' teaching rests on the foundation of who Jesus is. And again, the historical evidence supports this. It may come as a surprise to you that the early church did not spread most rapidly among middle-class Americans of the first century. <laughs> but it spread most rapidly among the poor, and especially slaves, and the oppressed, and the outcasts, those on the periphery of society, those who don't fit in at the head of the line. The oppressed, the outcasts, the poor, the slaves, the periphery of society, and these are exactly not the people who respond to messages to turn the other cheek to go the extra mile, to give the man who steals your cloak your shirt as well. You don't get far going to a slave and saying, I've got a message of good news for you. Turn the other cheek. Be good to those who mistreat you. If these people had heard that message, well, they wouldn't have paid any attention to it. No, what they saw were communities of believers who reached out to each other first, and then to others outside the community in love. That's what 1 John is talking about. Our reading from 1 John this morning. Love for the children of God. Love for those who are your brothers in Christ. They heard this message. They built communities of love and invited others to join in. And they asked, see how Christians love each other. See how we love you. See how we reach out to the sick, to the widows, to the orphans. We've built a community of love here, and now we're reaching out to you. And why did they do such a thing? Because Jesus changed everything. How did the early church ever get started? Because Jesus changed everything. And Jesus changes everything for you too. He identified with all your past suffering. He identified with all your past sin. These things are nailed to the cross and gone. And his resurrection is what proves this. And now you have a chance to find a new life. You have a chance to live behind the hurt and pain of the past. You've got a chance to live a life of dignity and value. And you've got a chance to live without the guilt of sin. And you have to understand all of that, you see. Because it's only then that you'll understand that a new life full of love for others begins to make sense. It's only after you enter into that community of love that you understand about turning the other cheek, about going the extra mile, about being good to those who hate you, about giving even your shirt to someone who steals your coat. This will start to make sense. Because your past and your present and your future are now changed. And now you act in a new life. Now you can learn what a life of love and justice and peace is all about. And because of what Jesus did for you, you now have the chance to participate in the spread of the kingdom of God. The reign of love and justice and peace and beauty and order over the entire world, not through having the correct social ideology, but through having a correct relationship with God and with your neighbor. That's a powerful message. 
That's a message that history shows reaches people who have nothing and people who have everything. Easter, you see, is not just a date on the calendar. That was just the pilot project for the whole universe. What God did for Jesus that explosive morning is what he intends to do for all of creation. And you and me, we who live in this time between Jesus' resurrection and his coming return, where he brings his kingdom with the final rescue and transformation of the whole world, we're called to be people of this new creation here and now. That's the message of the gospel. Not life after death, but to be new creation people here and now. That's the message of the gospel. Listen for it, embrace it, and live it.